You've tuned in to Check on Your Mates, a limited series podcast dedicated to men's mental health. How has the perception of well-being evolved for men over the years? How have veterans, athletes, physicians, and other leaders coped and inspired other men in their careers? Listen in as your host, Katie McSweeney, talks with them about their pivotal moments, the trials and the triumphs on Check on Your Mates. Here's Katie. Everyone, welcome to Check on Your Mates. I have here with me a true hero, Flo Groberg. He's the 2015 recipient of the Medal of Honor, which is the highest award you can receive. And really excited to have you here. Thanks for having me. Fired up. Awesome. I know that you have a story to share. And I just want to start off saying thank you for your service, for one, and would love to hear you tell our listeners a little bit about your time serving and what that was like for you. I know you have a really big story to share, so <laughs> time's of the essence here and want you to get straight into it if that's okay with you. Yeah, absolutely. No, it's, we all have a story, right? And, yeah. And we all have, we all have a path and mine, mine was forged towards the military <clears throat> when I was really young. I was about 12 years old. I'm an immigrant, so I wasn't born here. I was born in France. A lot of my family is North African, hence the face. And in nineteen, uh, in late 1980s, early 1990s, in my mom's home country of Algeria, this terrorist organization came in and wanted to just change their way of life. You think of uh, Algeria, it was like, people don't know this, by the way. It's like, just like Kabul yeah. in the 1970s, where people partied, uh, women wore mini skirts. You know, people drank alcohol. It was just a, it was Muslim country, but, mm -hmm. uh, westernized in essence. And so that was her country. And then this group predecessor to the, to Al Qaeda called a GIA terrorist organization came in and said, nope, that's not the way you should live your life. We're going to bring Sharia law and we're going to have you all put bells on. We're going to eliminate schools for women, things like that. And so the government fought back. And the people fought back. And one of those individuals that fought back against this terrorist organization was my uncle, Uncle Abdu. And he actually was a preacher of the Muslim faith. He was an imam. Mm -hmm. And he was young. He was 23, 22 years old uh, when he joined the army. And he went in and put his book down, put it on a uniform, became a special operator. <clears throat> and then got to come to the United States actually for a little bit for some training. And he fought these folks. And in 1996, uh, I was 12 years old, about to turn 13. On February 6th, my father came home from work early, and I'll never forget this. I came back from soccer practice, and I walk into into my our apartment in Maryland at that time, and my mom wasn't there. And he says, hey, I, just, I need you to sit down, and he tell you something. And he told me that my uncle had been killed. And so he was killed by this terrorist organization on February 6, 1996, during a ceasefire to observe Ramadan. And they ambushed him. They killed him. They shot him. And they beheaded him. And they dismembered him. They put him in a box and they sent him to my oh grandfather. My and the reason why they did that is because my grandfather was, was well known. He just passed away oh. a couple of years ago in Algeria. He was a prisoner of war in a French Indochine, so the oh. French Vietnam. And then later on, he was one of the catalysts in leading in a leading self against uh, the French to bring independence to Algeria against the French. So he was really well respected. So if what the point was, which is terrorism to its essence, is I am going to I have no 
regards or respect for who you are and what you stand for. And even though you're this well, you know, respected person, I just killed your son. And that's what I did to your son. My grandfather's response at the time was, well, I have 11 children and I have more than one son. So good luck. And more of my uncles joined the force at that point. But what it did to me, it changed my life yeah. at a young age, right? Because at that point, uh, when you're 12, right, you're building your foundation as a human being, absolutely, as a, as a man. And my foundation was deeply impacted by this traumatizing event. One, he was one of my favorite people in the world. Yeah. Two, I just could not understand how people could be so evil. And three, why in the heck did my father actually tell me the exact details of that story, right? He could have skipped a couple of things at that age, but he didn't. But reality was it shaped my mindset at a young age. And if it, it, it really directed me towards the military. Now, my father was in the military, my grandpa, a bunch of my uncles, a lot of folks, my family were in different militaries around the world, around the world. But for me, I, I figured here I am in the United States. One day I'll join the army. So you fast forward a few years later, and I've just been naturalized as a U.S. citizen in 2001, February 2001. Seven months later, uh, 9-11 happens. And it's the same people, right? The GIA, um, you know, predecessor Al-Qaeda. So now Al-Qaeda is attacking my newly adopted country. So my brothers and sisters... Uh, in this nation, and then obviously it's just so many of our friends from across the world that were part of the that were in the towers <clears throat> or the airplane, the Pentagon, and I felt that this type of evil was following me, wow. and I needed to be a part of that solution. Yeah. And so it was a no brainer. It was sort of liberating mm -hmm. to be so young, to be eighteen years old, and know exactly what you want to do with your life. Absolutely. And so I went, I was, I was in college. I was a freshman in college. And I remember calling my dad that night once the phone lines opened up and telling him I was going to drop out of school and join the army. His comment to me was really simple. He said, what did I ask of you when I gave you my name? Another piece I didn't tell you about this. I'm adopted. So he, he gave me his name and I told him, I said, I don't remember. I don't remember what, what you asked of me when you gave me your name. He said, when a grow brick starts something, he or she finishes it. Because the first time that you learn to quit is the last time you'll learn how to do things the right way. Meaning, you always find a reason to quit when things get hard. Whether it's a job, whether it's family, uh, whether it's school. And then he said, think about it. Sleep on it and let me know what your decision is. No matter what, I'll support you. Mm. And so the next morning I woke up and I said, all right, fine. Uh, I was a little ticked off, but I'll, I'll finish. I'll get my degree. Uh, and then I'll join right after. Mm -hmm. That's what I did. So I was a Division One athlete as well. I ran track for Maryland, uh, got my degree, and then joined the Army. Wow. Went in in 2008. Took a little bit longer because I had to renounce my French citizenship. I didn't realize how long that could take. Took almost two years, so it was very frustrating. But I finally joined the Army in 2008. Did the whole uh, gamut of training. Uh, selected infantry as my profession. Mm -hmm. Went to airborne school, ranger school, and then that was in Afghanistan in 2009, November of 2009. At that point, everything that I thought about and trained for and dreamed of was in my hands. 
And I'll never forget the conversation I had with my boss, my the battalion commander, Lieutenant Colonel Pearl, in December of 2009. I went into his office. We're in eastern part of Afghanistan, remote place in, in, in the eastern part of Afghanistan. And he's, he sits me down. He tells me, congratulations, Lieutenant. You're now going to get the opportunity to lead a team, uh, a platoon, at Combat Outpost Hanukkah Miracle. You're going to have 24 men under your soldiers. Wow. This, they're your responsibility now. So do the right thing. Make the right decisions. Right? Make sure you follow all your training and the rules we have here set in place. But good luck. And I walked out of that room. And for the first time in my life, I was petrified. For the first time in my life, I didn't know what to do. You know, I was like, there's imposter syndrome. There's all sorts of things in life, right? But even imposter syndrome, that's just a phase, right? You're, you're still, you know, within deep within you, you're capable of doing it. It's just a moment where, like, you can't believe it's happening. This was way beyond imposter syndrome. This was, I think I rushed everything and I faked my way through my training just to get here. And now it's real. Like, right now, that responsibility tomorrow when I take mm-hmm. over, that is, that means that I have people, men, who are going to listen to my direction and I'm going to put them in a situation where people are going to try to kill us. And if I don't make the right decision, I'm going to put their lives in jeopardy. And I felt like I was not ready. And that's a feeling I I can still to this day remember as day and night. So obviously what do you do in these type of situations where you you need an ally? And so Mm -hmm. that ally for me at that time was my father. So I called him. I said, Hey guy, this situation, I'm taking over this platoon and I'm super, I'm super nervous. I'm scared. I I just don't know if I can do it. I'll never forget what he said to me. He said, don't ever call me with that shit. Don't be, it's not the time to be weak now. Mm -hmm. You've gone through this whole training. You passed it with flying colors. There's a reason why you passed that training because you're capable of doing it, doing it. Stop thinking this way. Don't allow negativity to take over your mindset. You don't have time. You don't have the 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 opportunity to do that it's it's done that's gone you're there you're in it you're in a game man so you need to step up you start really realizing that you're capable of this and you need to go do it and then he said but i'll give you one word of advice simple one go find your number two in command you guys going you know you know the most senior non-commissioned officer on your team and tell them that you need help and guidance and support He'll help you. And don't ever call me with that crap again. And he hung up. Wow. <laughs> and I remember thinking like, man, this dude just hung up on me. Like, I might be dead tomorrow. And this is the last conversation. He hung up on me all pissed off. But that was probably the best advice I've ever received in my life. And the reason why it's the best advice I've ever received in my life is because it forced me to get out of my comfort zone. Mm-hmm. And it forced me to get out of a, mi- a negative mindset and it gave me structure. And by that, it really gave me a plan. Mm-hmm. And so that's, I followed that plan the next day and went to that base and I introduced myself to my number two, Sergeant First Class Corey Staley. And I told him, Hey man, I'm Lieutenant Groberg. He looked at me, said, I can read your name tag. I was like, great first impression. <laughs> awesome. But he said, uh, I said to him, look, I'm green as it gets. I'm new. Mm-hmm. I get it. But I'm here to lead. That is my responsibility. This is my platoon. But I can't do it alone. So I'm going to take my pride, my rank, and my ego. I'm, put on, I'm going to put it to the side. 
And I'm asking you, man to man, help me to guide me and mentor me and teach me how to be the most effective leader for this platoon. I'm going to listen to you. I'm going to listen to the team. And I said, I have, out of all the people here on the entire team, I have the least amount of combat experience. That 18-year-old kid over there has been here for four months, three, four months, has way more combat experience. He's more of a subject matter expert on, than you know, in this space mm-hmm. than I am. But I'm the platoon leader. I'm the officer. So I need to go do my job. But I don't have an ego that's going to take me away from learning from every single one of you. And he was really shocked by that because I was vulnerable. Yeah. I put myself out there and I said, hey, I'm look, I'm not hot shit at all. But I'm here to learn, but I'm also out here to do my job. I need your help. And so he told me, yeah, that's he, he said, that's awesome. No, you didn't say that actually. He said, okay. I need you to shut up over the course of the next seven days. <laughs> We're going to go out on patrol. We're going to get hit. I need, to, I need you to watch the way we react to contact. I want you to listen to the way we communicate internally, the way we communicate back to base, the way we communicate with helicopters or airplanes to drop bombs. And I, need, I want you to go and read all the historical battles we've had here over this course of this deployment and a previous one because you're going to own seven different villages across this area of operations. Finally... It'd be good for you to go and introduce yourself to the men, figure out where they're from. I didn't have any women at the time. Um, figure out where they're from, why they join the army, but don't get too close to them. You still need that separation because you're their boss. And then you're going to get a briefing from a company commander. He's going to give you his intent and his plan. Based off that, you and I will put a plan together. We'll brief it to the, our, to the squad leaders, and then we'll have a good, you know, we'll have a team ready for, for your leadership. So give me seven days. And I said, absolutely. Sounds great. But one more thing, this entire plan that we just discussed, where I want to brief it to every one of our soldiers tonight. He said, really? I said, yeah, man, if you ha- you're asking me to not talk for seven days, so mm-hmm. we could have the best plan. If I don't talk for seven days, they're going to look at me as weak and they're going to dismiss me right away. And, and by the time we're done with this, this deployment, uh, we wouldn't even have to we wouldn't have time to recover. He said, all right, man, sure, sure. he said, that's your platoon. <laughs> so I did that. And I did that because I believe in in two words. When it comes down to leadership, there's a couple of words, but these are two very important words. I need, you need to be authentic. You need to be transparent. That is the way people will respect you and trust yeah. you. If you're authentic, if you're yourself, you never change that. People know what to expect of you. And then if you're transparent, they know that even if you're going to give them bad news, right, you've, that you're not bullshitting them, that you're going to come with a game plan, right? They can right. count on you. There's nothing else behind that, you know, eight ball. That they need to worry about. And so with that, you eliminate this, the, the overthinking, the doubts and things like that. So we did that. And over the course of that, t- that deployment, we were in over 200 firefights. Um, we all came home. And I learned a lot of different lessons on leadership in, during, during that time. The second tour was two, I came back in July of 2010. And then I was back out there in February of 2012. And that time I was leading a specialized security detail for, at the time, the brigade commander, Colonel Mingus. And we owned 45 different stations, so bases, around six provinces in eastern Afghanistan. And my job was to protect him in the command arm major. That's it. So we flew in helicopters every day across Afghanistan. It was amazing. Got to see a beautiful country. Got to understand the war in a very different uh, perspective. And I got to protect him. I work with 
Delta, SEALs, CIA, uh, all sorts of special operators, all sorts of different units from different countries. Got to sit in really amazing meeting with, you know, with ambassadors and, and presidents. And, and it was just unbelievable. But to all good things, bad things, you know, especially in wars, there's never a, too good of a thing. There's always bad things lurking around right. the corner. And for us, one of those things was suicide bombers. And on August 8, 2012, when I was in, I was pre- prepping, I prepped for the, on the 7th, I prepped for a mission for us to go to the eastern uh, uh, provincial governor of, of Kunar, eastern Kunar, provincial governor, to northern Kunar, no, southern Kunar, geez, southern Kunar, Governor Wahidi's provincial governor's meeting, security meeting, that happened every Wednesday. And on that one, the boss asked me to bring a bunch of different leaders with him. And I, I always felt uncomfortable when he asked me to bring, you know, a lot of leaders. But it's okay. Called the unit that we're going to fly helicopters to. said, hey, I'm bringing two brigade commanders, three battalion commanders, an Afghan general, two GS-15 State Department guys, uh, one USAID. And then I'm bringing also uh, two command sergeant majors, and the two majors and my six security. I need an escort of 15 to 20 soldiers. So the way it worked back then, every time I left the wire to so my base, mm-hmm. I would fly to another base, U.S. base. Once I landed there, I had my six, my team of six security des- designated for the two individuals, the two principals. But every time, if we left that base to go to any, you know, location in Afghanistan, I needed an escort of 15 to 20 U.S. soldiers at a minimum to provide us security. Why? Well, in case we get attacked, my six, to include myself, we collapse on the principles, just like um, Secret Service. You've mm-hmm. probably seen you know, movies on TV. Right. Something happens. Someone sh- rushes the president. They all come and hug the, the president, right? And then yeah. they take him to safety and other people like take out the threat. Mm-hmm. Well, in this case, that's what we would do. We would literally like collapse on the principles. Mm-hmm shield them with our bodies and then the 15 to 20 would fight the fight to eliminate the threat while we escort them out wow so i am i asked for that element of folks to escort us from that base and on august 8 mm-hmm. to the governor's security meeting and the guy said nah i'm not gonna give you that because i'm gonna clear it before you get there i thought he was crazy I said okay put him on mute look at the adjutant for the boss, said, I'm going to repeat my request. You're my witness. Repeated it, told me to fuck off, and uh, hung up. I'm tired of people hanging up on me, by the way. Yeah. And uh, so I say, all right, he's probably having a bad day. He's going to realize that his boss and his boss's boss is coming. You might want to, you might want to be there, receive him, and give him an update on what's going on in the area and walk. You know, you, yeah. you have a thousand meter movement where you get to walk with them. Mm. But when we got there on August 8th, <clears throat> he took all the soldiers. All of them. I'll never forget that feeling because I was the first one off the helicopters and I saw no one waiting for us. So at that point, my number two came to me and his name was Sergeant First Class Brink. He said, what the heck's going on? And I looked at him. I said, this is not good. So what you do in the military, you you always have to be able to adjust on the fly. Right. Plan A never works. You have plan B, C and contingency plans at all times. So in this case, my head's spinning. I'm freaking out internally. I'm not going to lie to you. I'm freaking out. Right. But externally, I'm confident, calm, cool, collected. 
And I told him, I was like, okay, you see those 15 Afghan National Army guys sing, uh, smoking cigarettes by the gate? He's like, yeah. I'm like, get the translator and go get them. And I want you to put them up front. And I want you to spread them out. I'm going to go find any type of soldiers on this base. So you go to three places, well, usually four, but when you want to find soldiers in, in, a, in a military deployment. One, you go to the hooches where they're sleeping. Mm-hmm. Uh, you go to chow hall where the cafeteria, where they're eating. You go to the gym where they're pumping iron. Um, and then the last one I never checked is the shitters. Should have checked because there's always someone lurking in there. Mm-hmm. And so I went to those three places, only found one, and he was sleeping. And he used to work for me prior. So I woke his ass up and told him, come with me. He's um, still pissed off at me to this day because he <laughs> lost half a butt cheek. But, um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, he's literally, like, you know, whatever I'm sitting on, yeah. he, he, that's what he sits on every day now. Just, oh. just, <laughs> just so, feels so bad for him. Um, oh. But anyway. Hopefully he's not listening. He won't listen to this, I hope. Um, but anyway, he might. He might. Yeah, a little sacrifice. Uh, and then I found um, a contractor who was American and asked him if he had a rifle. He said, yep. And said, come with us. And so we went. And we walked that route. And I felt incredibly, I would say, uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. I had my spidey senses, it really kicked in. I, and I felt that I've been in firefights and I know when... You know, just eat. it's in the air. You know, it's yeah. about to happen. And in this case, I figured, oh, something's going to happen. Yeah. I just don't know what. And 700 meters into our movement, uh, they they ambushed us by creating diversion, the enemy. Oh. And they came at us with motorcycles in front of us uh, to create a diversion. As I said, luckily, the Afghan National Army, the guys that we didn't really didn't trust, he, the point guy did a really good job, stopped the bikes, raised his rifle, screamed at them, forced them to fall. They started running away. Everybody was fixated towards those motorcycles. Meanwhile, there was a structure to our left, a little small shack, and a guy walked out of it. So he's about 30 feet from us. Mm-hmm. And I see him because my number two is turning around to make sure I'm tracking what's going on with motorcycles. As he's turning around, he starts to look to my left, and he doesn't look at me. Now, he's fixated to my left, so forces me to look to my left. So I look to my left, and I see this guy. And I'm thinking, where the hell did this guy come from? And then he makes a move and another move, and he starts to walk towards us. So at that point, I left my position, and I ran towards him. Creepy thing. I can, I, I, I'm a terrible artist, so I can't draw. Like stick figures, maybe. That's about <laughs> it. I could, I can still see his face. It's clear, you know, it's clear as day. And he never looked at me the entire time. Never looked at me. Always looked past me. So when I got to him, I hit him with my rifle. And when I hit him with my rifle, I realized he was wearing something. So at that point, I let go of my rifle. It was slung to my kit. And then I grabbed him. That's when I knew he was, he was wearing a vest, suicide vest. So I yelled, bomb, bomb, bomb. And the only thing I could think about at that moment was I need to get him away from the boss and the team as quickly as possible, as far away as possible. And so I just pushed him and threw him, and then he landed on on his chest, and he detonated. He threw me about 30 feet, and I woke up um, a couple minutes later, dust of cloud, I mean, a cloud of dust, and... My foot was facing me, so I'm, I'm propped up. I have my, my assault pack, my backpack, yeah. so it's, I'm kind of propped up a little bit. You know, it's my legs in front of me, and my left foot's facing me. And I'm looking at my foot, 
I'm thinking, first of all, my my head is spinning, right? My helmet is loose, so I take my helmet, I throw it off, me at my head, and I look at my foot. I'm like, oh my God. I, that thing is that's pretty messed up. And then I look at my leg and my fibula is sticking out. And there's blood everywhere. Oh, <laughs> so I figured it was pretty bad, but and I'm a paper cut guy, meaning mm-hmm. that I bitch about a paper cut. I really actually hate <laughs> paper cuts. So when I saw that and I felt nothing, I remember thinking, oh, I must have stepped in on a on an IED, on a bomb, yeah. and I'm in shock right now. So I have about five, ten minutes maybe before the pain really starts kicking in. So I need to like apply a tourniquet, check myself yeah. for other wounds and things like that. And it's funny how like it just clicks. Right. Your training clicks. Yeah. All your medical training and things, you just know what to do. So in that case, I'm looking for my rifle too. So I look at my body, I have blood everywhere, and I have stuff on me, and, it's, and I realize it's not my blood, right? So this blood on my chest. But I don't, I don't have any other wounds except for my leg. I'm looking for my tourniquet, and I re- realized, oh, shit, my tourniquet was at the bottom of my left pants, in my left pant pocket. That got blown off. So I don't have a tourniquet. But I also believe that I'm probably in the middle of an ambush and I stepped in an ID. So the bad guys are going to come. So I need to find my rifle. Can't find my rifle. So I take my pistol out, make sure I got around in chamber. And I'm trying to crawl myself out of the kill zone. Luckily, my number two Brink showed up. Uh, it's like a movie. I, I, it's like he jumped out of this, you know, into this cloud. And, just, and I see him. And he comes in. He grabs me by the handle on my plate carrier so my my bullet vest plate and he takes me to a ditch where my medic balderama specialist balderama i think 22 years old at the time who's got a sprint you know a sprint acl mcl pcl severe concussion saved my life he applied a tourniquet with the help of my translator um they saved my life kept me awake to finish off the story i asked for a sit rep um, I wanted to know the status of the two individuals that we were tasked to protect the entire tour, Com- you know, Colonel Mingus and Commissioner mm-hmm. Griffin. And one of the guys came to me and said, hey, my warrior six, Colonel Mingus, is good to go. Maybe a little concussion, but he's fine. He said, my warrior seven, Commissioner Griffin, didn't make it. So at that point, I'm thinking, I mean, I'm not, I'm not hearing things right. Get, get, get me up. So they take me out of this ditch. They're trying to drag me. I'm like, I got one good leg I can hop. Um, and I'm walking with these guys hopping and there's body parts everywhere. It's just, it's kind of, it's really gnarly. And I get to this site where I see Command Sergeant Major Griffin, Major Gray, Major Kennedy, and then USAID Reggie Abdel Fattah all laying next to each other dead. And my life changed in that moment. That picture is a picture that I'll never forget. That is an imprint in my brain. And that is also, for the rest of my life, a part of me yeah. and who I am and who I will become. And so at that point, I um, I saw a bunch of Afghans, local Afghans, that were congregating towards the site. And so we had our guys pushing them away. Luckily, we had another unit that was at the security meeting that was able to push down and support us right away. So we had more soldiers at that point. Those 15 guys, 20 guys I asked for, they came to. 
Remember that guy I was telling you about? Mm -hmm. He didn't give me that security team? Yep. Well, he cleared the route, but he left it. In combat, when you clear a route and you leave it, it's no longer clear. It's hot again. All these all these dudes had to do is not leave the building. Yeah. <laughs> right? That's what you're asking from the beginning. No kidding. Yeah. If you would have secured it, that means it, fine. Don't don't come with me, but secure yeah. it. That means the entire route that I'm walking, mm -hmm. I have security, you know, around us, clear, you know, securing the town, then maybe that would have worked. Still don't think that would have, yeah. but so those guys came and helped out too. But I saw one kid, I'll never forget this. It's like another kid, Afghan kid, maybe 20, smiling. At the dead bodies of my friends. No. And I still had that pistol in my hand this whole time. And I almost shot him. Oh. I mean, I was going to pop him. Oh. And my 19-year-old PFC grabbed me by the arms like, it's not worth it, sir. We'll get yeah. him eventually. And then they put me in a truck and my war ended. And the pain came. It was, I didn't have morphine um, because we have so many casualties. We had four dead. Um, and I think there was over 20 to 24 others severely injured individuals the fact that i lived is is a miracle because he detonated my feet the guys that got that were killed they were 30 feet away 20 to 30 feet away from the bomber just the way the ball bearings went so you know i had surgeries in afghanistan surgery in germany and then i went back home to maryland at walter reed and i spent the next four and a half months as an inpatient there and that's when my life really took a turn I went from Division One athlete, Army Ranger qualified, you know, a couple tours of combat, tough guy, right? Want to be tough guy anyway, to a guy sitting in a bed contemplating suicide because I lost myself. Yeah. I had severe survivor's guilt, so I couldn't remember the actions of that day for a while, right? Because my brain was injured. I had a traumatic brain injury. I couldn't do for six weeks. I couldn't do simple math. I couldn't tell you how many quarters in a dollar. They would show me pictures of animals. I knew what the animals was, but I couldn't tell you the name of the animal. I couldn't follow simple directions like, hey, we're going to wheelchair you out of this, of your bed. You know, we'll put you in a wheelchair and we're going to make a left. And then you make your first right. And right after that, I'll lose. I wouldn't remember. It was incredibly frustrating. Uh, and when I started to remember, little by little, people would come in and ask a bunch of questions. There was an army, there was an investigation of how this could happen with such high level of, of military leadership together. Like, how come you have two brigade commanders, three battalion commanders? That would have been one of the worst losses in U.S. history in the military-wise, right, of leadership at one time. I couldn't remember. And I started feeling guilty. But all I knew is that it was my patrol my responsibility and people died on my watch and so when some of the family members of one of the men that was killed came and they were his brothers and they were asking me tons of questions what do you look like what happened why would this happen you know these things didn't help me and you added ketamine oxys morphine iv benadryl to go to sleep at night and at night the demons would come in and it would say you're 29 years old, dude. You're single. Like, bring nothing to the table. Griffin had a 16 year, a 15 year old daughter and, you know, 19 year old son. Kennedy had twins or a year old. Gray had three kids, you know, all under the age of seven. Um, Reggie had a 16 year old and, and, uh, and a 18, a 14 and 16 year old sons. And what do you have? Xbox? What do you have? You know, your, your nights at the bar with the boys. 
bring nothing to the table. You got him killed, blah, blah, blah. And they got stronger and stronger and stronger and stronger. And it just plays a toll on you. And that's when I realized, as I, when I overcame this, these type of demons with the help of many, that it was no Al-Qaeda, Taliban, Chechnyans, all the folks that I, all the people that I fought in Afghanistan was as strong, nearly, I mean, not even in the same universe in terms of strength than my own brain. And it doesn't matter who you are and what you stand for or what your background is. When your brain is injured uh, and those emotions came in, come in and those demons um, break down through all your barriers, it's, it's difficult. And when they're strengthened and amplified, augmented by substance, it's almost an impossible situation. But I was lucky because I was in a controlled environment. I was in the hospital. And one guy that saved my life to an extent was Travis Mills. So, and it's funny because I know you, you, you talked to David Babora mm-hmm. and David started ATF based upon his interaction with, with Travis. Yeah. And Travis is the one that came into my hospital room on November 12, 2012. And in 15 minutes, rewired me. In 15 minutes, he reminded me that I still had a purpose on this earth. He brought a little bit of light in a really dark tunnel. And he gave me a mission. And that is something I'll never forget. And I just saw him this summer in Maine. And that's one, one, I mean, I've, I have a lot of people that I respect and adore and look up to, but he, he's really on an, on an island of his own because of what he's endured, but most important, who he is as an individual. And he is genuine and he really cares. And that's something that I don't take for granted. And so it took years to recover. And to this day, you know, I'm still going through, you know, I still have my moments. But now I know how to cope. I know right. how to battle back. Um, and I know my reality. I also understand it better. And that's the thing about war, specifically for, for us military folks, is war doesn't end the day you come home. War never ends. That's why it's the ugliest thing in the world. It yeah. never goes away. It will deeply impact you forever. And having a really amazing, strong support system around you is, is, is one of the keys, in my personal belief, to surviving that war, specifically when you come home. But also what you, know, you and I are here to talk about, the aspect of vulnerability and understanding the importance of that word and then being able to take a negative and turn into a positive situation, specifically the word vulnerable is a key to that survival for us. And that's what I truly believe in. And that's what I fight uh, to be a, uh, a positive voice in my community mm-hmm. for. And so that's my story. Well, you have my <laughs> utmost respect, first of all. Just that whole story gives me chills. And I can't even imagine what you saw that day and what you're going through in the aftermath and are still fighting. And that's the bravest thing that a man can do to be vulnerable, to be his authentic self and the most respectable thing that a man can do. And also, you know, it will make other people feel less alone, just having those honest conversations and having that mentor too. like every man needs a mentor and mentee. So um, that was a really brave thing for you to do at the beginning um, to ask the second in command and, 
Yeah. Just, I'm just impressed so much with your adaptability too. And just being able to make those split decisions and trusting your instinct and really just doing what's the best. I mean, you saved thousands as a result regarding coping. I know you were saying that a support system was imperative and a sense of purpose too. So, um, how did you cope with that trauma ultimately, if you wouldn't mind elaborating on that more, integrating back into society? Yeah, it's a great question. I think, you know, obviously I was struggling at first yeah. and, and Travis, what I needed was, I, 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 like most, we think we're too tough and it's a weakness to talk about our thoughts or our problems. So I kept it all inside. And that's what your demons want, right? Right. And that's what I call them. And so I think people call them different things, but I call them my demons. They want they want you to keep it inside because they want to be in control because mm-hmm. they're two steps ahead of you, right? It's your own body. It's your own mind. They know exactly how your mind think. Now, when you have an external element that comes in, it starts to scramble the game plan internally. Uh, that's what demons don't like. And so that's what Travis Mills did because Travis Mills came in and was just said, hey, dude, like you have a voice, man. Now you have an opportunity now to go tell their names. You get to wear you know, the bracelet, but you get to tell their names. Like I just did. Every time I talk about my story uh, or I talk about the Medal of Honor uh, or, or any of that stuff, it's I bring up their names. And so he and this is way, way before Medal of Honor. But he's, he gave me that that pathway and that structure and really that mission. Hey, go out there and tell their story. That's your responsibility. Um, you don't. Ne- they're never dead when we tell their names. And that's what I'm going to do with my guys. And that's what you should do with your guys. And so he gave me a mission. That, that, that was a start. What it did do, though, after that is it allowed me to open up a little bit more. It took years. It didn't happen overnight. And it took a very specific group of individuals that I could open up to. Individuals that could understand where I was. Could understand what type of mission I was on. Uh, they had a similar background. So really, my internal community. And, but... I was still under the medical guidance of my doctors and a lot of it was narcotics, right? So I stopped taking any of that stuff. But the only thing I kept keep I, I kept taking was Ambien because I could mm-hmm. not sleep. I didn't sleep for two years. Uh my my every time I laid my my head down, I just I just couldn't sleep. It was almost like I was waiting for something to happen. Yeah. And so I took Ambien. Definitely not a good dude on Ambien. Not not saying like I'm a bad person. Like mm-hmm. I ordered more crock pots and weird mm-hmm. stuff on Ambien in the middle of the night. You can imagine. Like I seriously, I didn't understand what the hell was happening. There was stuff coming into my door. Be like, why did I order a crock pot? Why did I order the steamer? Why did I order the set of knives? I don't even have the money to do that right now. It's because when I was on Ambien, I was do- I wasn't doing it correctly. Mm-hmm. So all folks to take Ambien, follow the instructions. I wasn't doing it correctly. I'll take Ambien and pop in a movie. I figured I'll. I'll fall asleep, but I want to watch the movie and next scene. So then I was combating the actual effects of the ambient, which then makes you hallucinate mm-hmm. and makes you do weird stuff. And so it took me a while to realize that, but I mean, hell, a long time. But it was kind of funny to an extent. People were, thought it was hilarious. I was frustrated with it. But to me, my coping mechanism was I started to realize that I can just keep it inside. And so I, I found that really close knit circle of individuals and we shared and, but unfortunately I was following in the same trend as many of my peers and friends and people who are, you know, come from my background, which is a lot of times those conversations, those moments of sharing are happening over alcohol, right? Mm-hmm. So you bring substance again. Yeah. 
right? And then you get emotions and stuff, and it just doesn't help because yeah. it it almost um, creates another barrier to the healing process that is required for you to really cope and understand that the trauma you faced is trauma. It doesn't define you, right? It's not your new reality. It is a moment that you went through that you need to learn from. It's an experience. Yeah, that might have changed you to an extent, but it doesn't have to be, you know, you, your path forward forever. Right. And so that negativity doesn't have to be indulged into your body and take, and, and take over. But with alcohol, it was just short-lived all the time. And then it's a depressant. So you wake up the next morning and you're just like, oh, my gosh, like, you know, depressant things. I was my, – throughout my life, I've been blessed. I've been adopted. I've been a survivor, suicide bomber. I literally blew up on my feet. I had Travis Mill walk into my room at a very important moment on, you know, with, without any instructions from anyone, really. And then I met my wife. And I will never forget this because it was in October of 2014 and we went out, met her, <clears throat> met her with a bunch of our friends and we went out the next day and she, you know, a couple of days later, she asked me to stay over and I stayed over and I forgot my pills. I wasn't planning on staying over. So I forgot my Ambien and I said, okay, I'll just, I'll stay over and I just won't sleep. That was literally what I was thinking about. And I slept seven hours that night. This is the first time I slept since August 7th of 2012. Wow. And that was on October 6th, uh, 2014. And I slept seven hours that night. And I stayed over at her place the next night. I slept on like six, seven hours. I've ne I've, I never took Ambien to go to sleep after that. That's and it's the power of love. Yeah. Power of comfort. Case. And that's something about her at that point. I was like, I don't know what this is, but I know this is this woman is yeah. she's part of my future. And so with that, I started to understand, oh, my goodness, like I these are the things I was missing, like this human connection, this ability to to be comfortable around someone else, express myself in a way where I don't feel I'm going to be judged to open up a little bit. And that's, that's how I think that was another part of my life that changed when I met my wife. At that point, I realized, as I said, you know, power of love, comfort. And with that, the last piece of my sort of transition back into mm -hmm. society from my demons was after I received the Medal of Honor. So for the actions of August 8, 2012, on November 12, 2015, President Obama uh, awarded me with a, and presented me and awarded me with a Medal of Honor, as you said in your opening statements. And what that did is, first of all, I felt incredibly uncomfortable. I felt like a fraud. I never wanted it because nothing that you do in the military is about you. So it's about the team. And so on, on that day, on August 8th, uh, PFC Ochart did an unbelievable job of protecting Colonel Mingus taking him away from the blast. My uh, Sergeant Mahoney, my radio guy, came with me. When I threw the guy down, he came, he was behind me. He came in and tried to push him down, finish him down, so make sure he landed on his chest. He he received a silver star for that. A Brink, 
did an unbelievable job as soon as the blast happened to cordon the entire area and start working with a medic, taking care of the medic and another soldier to start triaging us and um, marking us, but also securing potentially any future attacks. Secor was out there helping with Brink. And, and so you need to think about that. You think about the team, the, the aspects of that, what they've done to save lives, what they did. Because there was two more bummers, by the way. Uh, in a story I even forgot to mention, the one guy I threw, we were lucky that we got to him that quick because when he landed, he detonated, he forced a second bomb that was coming out of that same structure to detonate early. So it was boom, boom. So they really wanted to kill us. But there were two more in the area that I wanted to, in case these two guys fell, that were ready to go out and, and finish the job. But because of Brink and his work and securing the area, Directing the other soldiers that heard the blast and came running to support us, we are able to prevent the other bombers. So you think about all these things mm-hmm. happening, and then you're on a pedestal now. You're on a platform. You're being highlighted, and people are calling you a hero. And you're thinking, nothing that you do in the military is about you. It's about the team. And but also, these guys did an unbelievable job, but here I am singled out. So I felt like a fraud. But... What it did also is, and that was a great conversation with President Obama at the time. And he told me, he's like, you have a platform now, Flo. You, this is your platform. Do some good with it. I know you will, but you can do some real good. You, you can walk through any doors in the Pentagon. You can walk through the doors in the White House. Um, you're one of the very few. There's only been, you know, over just over, over 3,500 Medal of Honor recipients in our history of, of this country. Over 40 million have served. So that's a, very tiny number. I don't, I, I'm not going to do the math here, but he's like, this is, you, you have an ability to really go help and do some good, but it's on you. But what it did is it forced me, we seen a metal force me to tell my story like right now over and over again. And from that moment on, believe it or not, I've never taken any type of, uh, of, um, well, it's not true. That's not true. It helped me eliminate a lot of the medication that they, they would give me, right? To cope with it. It began therapeutic. Be able to share. It takes out my demons. Cause now they hate that, right? Mm-hmm. Like, man, why do you keep talking about us? Cause then you hear other stories. Cause I'm opening up and this other person's opening up and it don't have to be military. That's why I love ATF, right? Yeah. You'd be first responders, could be doctors, could be nurses. I mean, think about the trauma that I went through. And I think about doctors who, you know, get in the operation room and they have to save someone's life. And they don't, they don't, you know, for some reason, in that case, that person doesn't make it. They're human beings. That impacts them, right? And so I started talking to different folks about their experiences, people in car crashes, people losing loved ones. And you start to understand the pain that we feel as human beings. But one thing that really helped me and a lot of the folks I, I talked to is the ability, the ability to be able to express ourselves, mm-hmm. to be vulnerable, to tell, talk about our weak, what we perceive as weakness, to be able to put us, put ourselves in a, in a state where we can be judged, but not being afraid to be judged. And it really changed my life because one, when you're vulnerable and you share, you're saving someone's life in that moment. Absolutely. Because 
you, not I'm not saying every person you share with, but there's going to be someone in an audience that's probably going through something very difficult and they would share with no one. And I cannot tell you how often I've had people come to me and say, thank you for sharing because I'm going through yeah. something really difficult. And you just gave me the courage to open up a little bit and then it start opening up with me. And so you listen to them and, you know, you give them best direction for them to go. I said, but you just completed the hardest step. It's like, congratulations. You just completed the hardest step. You talked about it. You took that step. And I'm such a big proponent of that. And so, like, when you go to ATF, for example, mm-hmm. Adaptive Training Foundation, what David's doing, you get the workout, you get the breath work, but you get also the community aspect. You get the moments to talk, to share your stories, right? To put what you perceive as your your weakness or your impossible, right, or your ceiling, you put it out there. And David and the team, they come out and say, no way, Jose, man, we're going to, you're going to go, you're going to crush that ceiling. We're going to show you what you're really, truly capable of on the physical side, on the health side, also spirituality side, if you want it. We're going to give you the opportunity to rediscover yourself and what you're capable of doing. And that's the journey that I went through myself, not specifically with ATF, but through my experiences through all these folks where I had to rediscover myself. I was a Division One athlete and I ran track. When I lost 50% of my calf and infused my foot, they took away my running. Well, how do you adapt to that, right? That was a big part of my personality that was taken away. Well, you do it something. You, you row, you do CrossFit, you do different things. Just because one part of you, of your story, is no longer feasible doesn't mean that you can't find something just as important, just as valuable, something you can become just as passionate about. But it took me a long time to figure that out. But it is through friendships that I have, Travis, yeah. David, and many others, right, that I'm able to, you know, I find that confidence. Um, I put myself in uncomfortable states to challenge myself. And then I... I don't allow my demons to to dictate anymore who I am and what I sh- who I should be and how I should look at myself in the mirror. This is what I look at in the mirror every morning. I look at myself in the mirror with this thing and I tell myself and I, I don't see these words but I tell myself you got to earn it. You got to earn this day, you got to earn this breath. And now you know it's been 11 years since the actions. I have a, the most amazing person in my life, Carson, my wife. I have the second most important person in my life, my son, Orden. You just turned one today. Oh, happy birthday to Orden. Big birthday, boy. Aww. Um, And then I have my community around me. But it's been a process, and it's an ongoing process. This will be a process in the, for the rest of my life because I've slipped as well. Yeah, I mean, we're all only human, and I just have chills thinking about how Travis came into your life at the right time, and as well as David, and how that was a turning point to you, ultimately, and sort of a rebirth, it sounds like, just finding new sense of purpose, still being yourself, but a new sense of identity in a way, and a death of the old self, and just moving forward. I mean, there's not a roadmap for veterans on how to integrate back to society, essentially. And that's why so many struggle with mental health, which just in my research um, with male suicide rates, as you know, it's 79% veterans. It's actually more veterans have died since 9-11 um, by suicide than combat. So it's a mental 
battle that people are going through. Like you said, the war is still ongoing after you leave the war. If you wouldn't mind elaborating a little bit about that, have you lost any buddies to suicide or um, is that something you've experienced in your own life? When you, your question about suicide, that's that they, that hits deep because yeah. I've lost too many of my friends to suicide. So I was just, uh, this past year, I think it's about four. Wow. And one of them was Sergeant Wade, one of the, my first deployment, um, squad leaders. And he, he was just this massive of, of, of a human being. I'm talking about like six, five yeah. hockey player, tough on the ins, tough on the outside, but really sweet on the inside. Teddy bear on the inside. Once you get to know him, you know, beautiful family. And just thought he was doing good, right? And so between that and cancer, I'm seeing these unbelievable rates of just of, of, of deaths in our community. But suicide is, you're absolutely right. We've lost more to suicide than we actually did in overseas and in, in, in combat. That is an epidemic that we need to fix. Absolutely. Uh, we need all hands on deck. Here's a crazy one. You know, just just to add flair to it, there's 33% more female veteran suicide than male uh, veteran suicide. Oh, interesting. How interesting, right? Oh. No one really talks about that because there's not as many women right. serving. And that number is is unbelievable. And so it's just it's, – it's about that uniform. It's about those individuals yeah. who – what they suffer when they go through. And a lot of it is traumatic brain injuries. Mm -hmm. um, and be, we, we're learning more from – Thank God from sports to an extent, yeah. right? CTE right. and the effect of trauma, right? So think about individuals who for years of their lives, every time they're, whether they're in combat or training, right? Their brain is shaking. Their brain is shaking, right? From uh, mortars, shooting mortars to, you know, gunfire to all the different things. And then you go to combat, you have bombs around you, IEDs, you're shooting AT4s, javelins, you know, some heavy type of equipment. Um, and you're banging your head, you're banging your head, you're dropping, you're falling, all sorts of crazy things. And so that is something that I'm personally involved in trying to figure out, working with, you know, with, with ATF or mm -hmm. Avalon Alliance Pact with yeah. uh, Arthur, Arthur Blanks, Bernie Marcus, our big uh, proponent and supporters of, the, of this group lead, led by Stephen Cannon, uh, who runs all the stuff for Arthur Blanks and the Falcons. And he's a West Pointer. Uh, we're trying to fund... Uh, TBI clinics around the country, specifically in support of places where the VA can't be, right? We're also helping with programs uh, like called Path Forward with uh, where VA will now send veterans uh, to go through our program. And we're, we're trying to raise, I mean, we're talking about $245, $250 million, right? Big dog money. One of the programs that's in Path Forward is Travis Mills, his own nonprofit. Wow. And so to me, it is a, that is a lifelong uh, commitment mm -hmm. because that number it used to be 22. God knows what that number is today. Accurately, it is once too many. Zero should be it, once too many, which means that for the rest of my life, I'm going to be battling and fighting to save as many lives as we possibly can because I understand how easy it is for one to want to take their lives. Because no. I was one of those guys.
Well, that's so brave of you to, you know, turn your pain into a purpose and just be vulnerable. And it, like you said, one too many in four in one year, I can't even imagine. I've just noticed a trend, just even non-veterans, just in my own circle that by age 25, 30, the majority of men have lost at least one buddy to suicide. I mean, it's an epidemic and with veterans, it's being higher. So yeah. Yeah, just what you are doing, what Travis is doing, and David, it's great just because there's no roadmap that exists. So it's creating that, creating that safe haven for those who shared experiences to connect. And having Travis come into your life was a huge part for you too. So I just want to end on that note. Um, what advice would you give to men that are currently looking for mentors on how to find one? Well, first of all, I would say when it comes down to finding a mentor, one thing you need to be, you need to be honest with yourself right? and you need to look at yourself in the mirror and say, um, if you're going through something that's difficult, just say it out loud, just to yourself yeah. in the bathroom. I'm going through something that's difficult. I hate where my life is at right now, or I can't stand this or blah. And I need to, I need to figure out a way to get through it. I need help. Yeah. And when you do that to yourself in the mirror, close the door. No one there, no one's to judge. No one, no one will judge you but yourself. But be honest with yourself for once. That's a step one. Second, there are tons of organizations and people. Literally, what I would do is that first mentor, go find a friend. Right? If you're a military veteran, find one of your buddies that you serve with. Call that individual and say, hey, dude, I'm fucking struggling. And I feel like I'm on an island. And I feel like I need and I know I need help. Start there. That is going to my personal opinion. That's going to open up that door for you to be more receptive to support. And then there are organizations like ATF. There's organizations um, like the Mission Continues. There's organizations like Yellow Ribbon Fund. Uh, also, so, you know, there's so many different groups. The USO Pathfinder Program, right? Do just get online and find, you know, my local community. Find a group of individuals, right? If you can't do that. Then like reach out to folks on LinkedIn, reach out to folks on you know, Instagram, right? Reach out to me. Right? Just if you send me a LinkedIn message, more than likely I'm going to look at it. I, I can't keep up with Instagram and Facebook because there's just so much garbage, right? right? You know, it's like I, I just hundreds of messages from like bots and stuff. It's really weird. But LinkedIn is a little bit more clear cut. And I've had people reach out to me and say, hey, I'm struggling here. Can you help me? I'm not going to be able to help everybody, mm -hmm. but I sure as hell I'm going to be able to give you a connection point. Absolutely. Right in your area. So I think that's where I would start because I'm not saying that is the, the secret sauce to solving to, you know, our problems. Mm -hmm. I just know that it worked with me yeah. to be able to share my story and then hear, listen back to many other stories has put me in a better spot. That's incredible. Well, that's great advice. And I'm so glad that you fought during that dark time and are here today and are an inspiration to myself and many and it's just been an honor to have you here and just hear your story and just hear how you overcame that and how you're turning that into purpose now thank you so much you too thanks for yeah. what you're doing thank you for listening to us sharing our stories and you know having the impact that you're going to have with this podcast i really appreciate that I appreciate that thank you so much thanks, thanks.